comes to us from the good news according to Luke, fourth chapter. And Jesus began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst... He went away. This is the gospel of our Lord. So last week, the title of the sermon was uh, The Greatest Sermon Ever, and it culminated with the first verse of the passage this week, where Jesus gives his first public sermon, and he's in his hometown. And I said, maybe it was the greatest sermon ever, uh, partly because it was short. It was one sentence, right? He says, today, the Bible passage I read has been fulfilled right here in your presence. But honestly, that was a little bit of subterfuge, because if you heard our text this morning, it says, he began saying to them, which is a colloquial wave of them saying that this is the substance of his message. He went on to talk, uh, which gives me latitude today. I have biblical precedent, right? What it means is he said a lot more, And evidently, it didn't seem memorable enough or important enough for the original hearer to pass it on to Luke as he was researching his gospel, right? Welcome to life as a preacher. You know, lots of words and only a few things are memorable. And if you're looking at terms of results, this is no Billy Graham crusade. It's not going to get Jesus on Oprah's book list. There's no Nobel Prize waiting for him. You don't even really see any change for the better in the lives of the congregation, his audience. It doesn't seem like they moved in small ways towards something more beautiful and praiseworthy, something more like God's kingdom. No, the result is that the congregation tries to throw Jesus off a cliff, which my twins just swore to do to me if I preached for longer than 20 minutes this morning in the cold. It's as if they're saying, yo, Vinny, get the concrete boots. This one's got to take a swim with the fishes. They're going to kill him. And just a side point here before we get into the text a little bit is it only goes to show that faithfulness in ministry, for you, for you in this sense, your ministry, but also just in your Christian life, faithfulness doesn't always translate immediately into obvious success. It doesn't always mean that you or others can see the fruit of your faithfulness. What seems to matter most instead is faithfulness expressing itself in love, regardless of the impact or the consequences. That's what Jesus did. He was faithful to love the world, including this congregation that he had grown up with, by living out in deed and in word the love of God, even if it made them want to kill him for it. 
The only thing that mattered to him, even when the truth hurt those listening or made them angry, was revealing to them the universal love of God, especially in this way, especially for his hometown, his people, revealing to them, preaching to them, living out to them that the love of God is especially for others. Salvation is not just for them, but for others. You might think of it this way, specifically, the other. Capital T, capital O, if you will. The other in our life. See, Jesus had gone home again. He chose this text. If you'll remember, I'll just tell you briefly, he chose this text where Isaiah is reminding uh, the people in Isaiah's day that God had given them a law to keep this year called the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. And this was to be on the 50th year, a seven of sevens, 49, a Sabbath of Sabbaths. On the 50th year, uh, in Leviticus 25, it says that they are supposed to practice a whole year where they put the reset button and salvation comes to everyone. It says specifically, you're going to free anyone who's become a slave and had to go into indentured servitude. You're going to cancel all debts. You're going to let the land lay fallow and you're going to turn all property back to its original distribution under Moses. So anyone who got too rich and got too poor, it all went back. It started over. And Israel never, ever lived this out. There's no record that they ever lived it out. And so at Isaiah's time, they're saying, the Lord is still going to do this. The Christ is going to come, and he's going to bring the year of Jubilee. This was the sermon last week. And Jesus stands up and he says, this is fulfilled in me. And at first, as he's talking, they're marveling. They're like, wow, he's, he's kind of a slick preacher. This, this boy's got some words. Isn't this Joseph's son? Joseph. My boy Joseph over here. This is your kid, right? Oh, he's one of us. We've actually heard his famous starting to spread. He's doing things in Capernaum and all these other places. This could be good. One of our own is making good in the world. Maybe they'll go out and bring us up with him, scratch our backs. And they start to feel the stirring of heart at this point. They have this claim on Jesus, and he immediately knows what's going on in their hearts. And he says to them, doubtless you're going to quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. It doesn't mean doctor, heal yourself. You're saying you're the doctor and you've come home to your people. What we've heard you did out there for Capernaum, do it here for your hometown. And Jesus immediately, because he loves them and loves the world, he's exposing our tendency towards tribalism and especially religious kind of tribalism. This is like kinship stuff, tribe stuff, family first stuff, our people, our folk, our kind. You can hear the hour. Do it for your people, Jesus. Don't forget where you came from, who made you. Don't forget where your loyalties lie. When you get up there, do something for us. Put our enemies in their place. Pick sides. Remember who's, who, who you stand with. And he says to them, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And he goes on to explain to them, Elijah, Elisha, their country was going through tough times. And the prophets were these great prophets that now in hindsight Israel respected. But they were never sent to heal Israelites. Instead, they were sent out to these people in strange places, in the land of Sidon, to Naaman, a Syrian. All these outsiders, the other these people that are poor and marginalized, that are left out, that aren't religious enough or good enough, they're not our kind of people. The bottom dwellers of society. Specifically in the year of Jubilee, they were supposed to reset everything. Those who'd failed, those who'd made bad decisions, those who 
other through decisions of their own or decisions of others or just mishappened circumstance became widows and orphans and barren women who can't bear children and the poor, the sick, and the homeless. They were to have extended love to all of those in society and outside of their society. And if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus is constantly getting in trouble for this, for extending God's love to the outsider, to the wrong people, with tax collectors and sinners, the religious people were mad at him. And then the other side judged him because he dined with the religious folks, the uptight people, Pharisees and lawyers. He ate with lepers. He received a woman with a poor reputation at a men's dinner banquet. He invited himself to a sinner's home. See, Jesus constantly says, I'm not going to live according to your idea of who deserves it, of who has debt and who has credit. I'm not going to live according and love according to your purity codes or to your religious quarantines of who has to stay out and stay home or any other practice that excludes and says who is in and who is out and who doesn't belong. In short, Jesus rejects the starting point of most religions and cultures and societies and tribes. He refuses to divide the world between the pure and the impure. Who deserves to be loved and who doesn't? He doesn't show favoritism for any one tribe or group or race or one political or religious party. And because of this, because he is saying to them, you want me to do a favor for you, you think you have a claim on me because I'm from here and I'm one of your people, and you want me to come home and do the right thing for your kind and get us some good, good things for us and bad things for our enemies? And he says, that's not how God's love works. It's not how I work. It's not how the kingdom works. It's not how the year of Jubilee works. And so they want to throw him off a cliff or later nail him to a cross. See, the human ego is constantly trying to find ways to identify and to puff up and to feel like we belong and to exclude others. This is a part of what it means to be a sinner. It's to constantly try to find your own way to make yourself right or acceptable or better or not as bad as those on the other side of whatever wall you put up around yourself. And so they're mad at him because Jesus is saying God's love is for all people. And just like Elijah and Elisha went outside of Israel and went to all these other people and extended God's love to them, that's what I'm about to do. The good news here is that he's showing that the good news is good news for everyone. That salvation is for all. It's not just for those who deserve it. It's especially for anyone who knows their need of him, as we even sang earlier. It shows that the whole world is important to God. The good news is being announced to people in every walk of life, the elite and the marginal, the powerful and the powerless, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, friends and enemies. None are to be excluded. Everyone matters to God, and in some way, we are all alienated from him. And we all need to be made at peace with him again. And perhaps we're even more alienated from him the more self-righteous we are or the more that we're really happy about our culture or our heritage or our skin or our uh, anything that you can think of, our accomplishments. 
They're alienated so much that they want to throw them off a cliff. And he's saying that he's going to those who know their need of him, wherever they come from, tax collectors or sinners, Roman centurions or Samaritan women. And when we believe this good news, when we receive it and share it, we are saying that everything that gives us status and secures our identity in this world is worthless in God's kingdom. This is precisely where the gospel is most offensive because it reveals our idols for what they really are. We've been told that life is about getting ahead, being successful, enjoying sexual freedom, gaining financial security, pursuing happiness, doing good. But Jesus says the economics of the kingdom don't work that way. The kingdom comes by grace It cannot be earned, and those who think they deserve it are often the farthest away from entering into the kingdom. For us, I just want to give us a couple applications. One is a little bit more cultural, and I'm going to speak right on the nose of it. If you're mad at me, then just do me the favor of talking to me about it later. In our culture, it looks something like the political and cultural forces of, on the one hand, a kind of full-blown MAGAism. Yeah, America, you know. We're, gosh darn it, if you're not with us, you're against us. And on the other hand, it can look like unfettered wokeism cancel culture. If you don't get it, if you don't believe all the right things and put down all the right stuff and get rid of all this kind of thing, and then, then you're not one of us. Which is to say, when you're fo- forced to get your identity from a group that says or believes or does all the right things and make sure that you have an enemy to be turned against all the time. It's to say, no, 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 I don't want to hear any talk or debate about policies or talk about learning anything from the other side or perhaps even to blend a little bit from this emphasis and that emphasis. For example, could we talk about right to life extending from the as yet to be born? Maybe comes from one side of the political aisle more than the other to also talk about a right to life for the weak and the impoverished and the sick? Can we do that? Can we talk about the kingdom and jubilee for all in that way in our culture and say, I'm not going to get pulled into identity politics. I'm not going to go in and say, I have to be on this side and I have a bunch of enemies. If you're not with me, you are against me. And again, I'm just talking about contemporary America. It's probably more close to home to apply the sermon to the church. That's what Jesus was doing. He went home to his home church, as it were, his home synagogue. And he's basically showing that religious people maybe have more of a tendency to do this than anyone else, or at least as much of one. We are the beloved kingdom community of God, the beloved community. We're supposed to demonstrate his kingdom, demonstrate his year of jubilee, to live it out, to receive it, and to share it with our neighbors, to let his love for the whole world come through us. And so ask questions individually in your own thinking and also as a church. Who are our outsiders? Who are those we consider the other? What barriers do we make to keep people from coming into contact with God's love and his salvation? Who are we telling they have to pick sides? Does the fact that we've split into a million denominations and we like to police the boundaries of our denominations help us or hurt us with those who are on the outside? What kind of membership or requirements do we have and why? Who do we serve? 
even more, who do we let serve us? Which means we're in a position of vulnerability. Who do we eat with? Who would we pray with? Who would we work together with? In our thoughts or in our conversations, who do we constantly complain about in the culture or in the world and cast as our common enemy? Now, this is a question I've had for a while. I keep thinking when I look at contemporary American church, and I just ask this question, and I want it to apply to us, not just the American church, but us. If we were forced to choose between keeping our enemies or keeping Jesus, which would we keep? And if we were forced and we did say, well, of course, Jesus, okay, what would actually be left of our Christianity if we weren't stoking the fire about enemies all the time? We couldn't sit around gathering and getting motivated and excited about our personal or cultural or worldview enemies. Who is your other? What is revealed about our inner motivations, worries, news sources, prayers, is it a lot about enemies, or is it a lot about God's love that is offered to everyone? How can we honestly keep enemies when Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount? You've been told by all your leaders that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for every single person who ever persecutes you. If you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Even the nations do the same thing. Instead, be like your father. Love your enemies. See, Jesus' kingdom exists to embrace those we cast as outsiders, others, and enemies. In this way, the message of jubilee and of salvation is also a message about judgment. It judges our judgments. We realize there is only one judge who finally gets to decide who's in and who's out. And he is bringing justice. He is making decisions. He is bringing restitution. He is bringing repair. And he seems to want to bless those on the outside, those who are estranged, those who are oppressed, those who are forgotten those who are left out and left behind by the world. Which means this is good news for us if we know our need for him and we don't have claims upon him. That the year of Jubilee, this message about joy and rest and restoration is for you personally. It's for you and for me. And it's also a message about repentance, changing our minds in ways to include the other in our prayers, in our love, and as often as possible in whatever way we can in our community. You heard this passage earlier. If I give away all I have, and if I even deliver my body up to be burned, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. You can think about an enemy. Think about somebody that you really don't like when you read the newspaper or someone you're really mad at personally. God's love for them and through you is patient and kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And love never ends. 
See, at the end of the day, Jesus' hometown church, their love was too small to include the other. And so, their community became too small for Jesus. This former hometown son of theirs, they decide is the enemy and they try to kill him. This means for us that the scandal of the cross and of God's love is that he is making a new family. A new family that transcends all these other barriers. It's marked out just by water and baptism and faith and forgiveness and love. And what if we lived this out for a divided age? What if people came and said, man, you got people from rich, poor, black, white, right, left, all the things. You find a way to put God's love first and his kingdom first and to share and to live out jubilee. I love this prayer that's in the Book of Common Prayer. It says, he stretched out his arms of love on the hard wood of the cross in order that all might come within the reach of his saving embrace. That hug from the father for prodigals. It includes you. It embraces me. And it reaches out to invite in the outsiders, the strangers, our others, our enemies. Faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest of these is love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank mm-hmm. you.